I'm Aeson, it's Friday, and this is the Friday Show. It's the show that wants to give Nick Harris a big hug and take all the Guardian football writers for a drink to help them drown their sorrows. Joining me to look back at another epic week of refereeing nonsense and journalistic angst, I've got a referee and a journalist, Chris and Dom. Afternoon, Dom. Hello, mate, how are you? I'm good, how are you feeling? Yeah, good, good. Good week? Um, yeah, excellent week, very enjoyable week. Um, and yeah, reference journalist, you, I was saying before, you get a lawyer on, you've got the full set of the popular professions. Anyone who anyone only coppers, get that one. Oh, yeah, that's true. Fair shout. Chris, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not quite a copper, but referee, yeah, close enough. Uh, wow, that's right. That's right on the line, that one, son. <laughs> <laughs> a copper and a referee setting the tone split. early today oh, aren't okay. I? okay let me just give me a second i'll just take my gloves off and then we can start <laughs> properly so <laughs> i'm good mate it's it's friday i always like fridays because it's me the too. day before saturday which is great and it's been a it's been a week it's been yeah wednesday evening was a special evening of football and uh, yeah no it's good yeah i'm happy to be on lovely well look um as we always do on the Friday show, we'll start with the week that was. Uh, on the pitch, Sheffield United at Wembley in the FA Cup semi-final. City win, and then Arsenal midweek at home, and City win. Dom, I'm going to start with you. Thoughts on sort of both the performances and how they dovetailed in terms of rotation and selection and whether they lived up to what your expectations were? Yeah, I think the most important thing here, at this stage of the season, particularly with the T word, which we'll discuss later now coming into view, um, is that FA Cup final draw, so FA Cup semi-final draw, sorry, is is what City needed. Because like, I think we've noticed over recent seasons, there's this tension and pressure point um, around that semi-final after a Champions League quarter-final where things do kind of catch up a bit when they've had Liverpool and had Chelsea and those games haven't gone well. Sheffield United, who are having a great season in the Championship, it was a little bit of a pressure-off game in terms of the quality of opposition, which I think was massively needed before the Arsenal game. And it's a week that, in terms of selection, in terms of results, um, it's all gone perfectly to plan for Guardiola, who's like pretty much since January has been on fantastic form as a coach. Um, and yeah, I, I just thought I thought Wednesday was just spectacular. And you put it in the context of like that run of home games against Leipzig and. Bayern and Liverpool it's like big games and turning up the way they have for those is mm. it's very impressive yeah the, the the mentality has been has been particularly impressive uh, Chris I want to ask you a little bit uh, across both the games what if anything it tells you about the kind of team spirit and togetherness throughout the squad because I, I feel as though there was obviously a level of rotation between Sheffield United and, and Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard, don't know if you saw what Guardiola said after the Sheffield United game about Mares and, you know, being unable to convince him that he's very important to the group, even if he's not starting. Uh, mm. had, where, do, where, do you, where do we find ourselves in terms of the moment in the season and the team spirit? Before we look at the kind of football inside, just from the human aspects. I think that any... Any successful manager always has at least one 
lieutenant on the field who is his kind of you know his conduit link and it's and it's and traditionally in english football i suppose in european football it's been the captain and the captain will disseminate not just the strategy but also the attitude on on the field you know you, you know you look at people like roy Keane, john taper like that they 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 personify that 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 manager's attitude what i'm seeing in in this city team more than any iterations of Pep's City team is that every single player that goes on the pitch for him now is one of his lieutenants is that they know exactly what the game plan is they know what's at stake and they know what's expected of him if, if you watched um uh, I watched De Bruyne's post-match interview with Peter Drury where he, he just talked in detail about the decisions he was making on the pitch in terms of his positioning basically it was like watching it was like listening to Guardiola talk just at a slower more comprehensible rate really mm-hmm. um, and and that's that that's what I'm seeing now is 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 all of those players who are playing they that that's why there's no weaknesses that's why there's no vulnerabilities there because because they are so incredibly cohesive and they are and they are, they are taking autonomy on that pitch maybe you know, obviously, every quality player wants to play. Maybe when you're not in that starting eleven for some for someone like Mares, he feels like he's not kind of deeply part of that sort of team, part of that kind of attitude. But but what I'm seeing now is just this ruthless ambition, where the players no longer be- they no longer believe in chance. They 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 believe in strategy, application of that strategy, and results, and. I, think, I thought the best example is that is what you saw on Wednesday. However, I'd still like to question. I think even the City players may have been a little bit surprised at how dominant and how effective they were on Wednesday. So right now, in that team, I don't see any weaknesses when we put our strongest 11 out. And that strongest 11 can be drawn from about 14 or 15. Well, no, about, about 14 players. So I think on a human level, those players are in a very, very good um, place and they they see solutions and not obstacles. It takes a long time to build all that mentality, and maybe this is a really significant threshold of Guardiola's time. That if he'd only been with us for three or four years, we couldn't have got to the point of mentality that we're at now. It's mm. it's, it's a massive. We saw something very different on Wednesday, which filled me with glee, but also then pumped up my ambition about around things like the, the travel, which I know is a slightly fine line for us to be walking on. Mentality monsters, you could say. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but what's, ch- what's changed? Because if you go back a few months, I think that there, there was, we, we've spoken about it a lot on the podcast that we do on the 9320 player, that there was a moment where we felt that this was a season of transition. The players were playing within themselves. It felt, I mean, Guardiola questioned the team spirit, the togetherness and the commitment after Spurs. And he said, to quote him directly, I think he said, I don't recognize my team. Um, In terms of, again, before we get into the football side of it, from a human side, what do you think's changed? Uh, can Can it be as simple as... It can't be as simple as Cancelo was just like a really bad smell. But there is part of that is... Is kind of sort of wrapped up in the truth of it because it was a season of tactical transition mainly of how you change from the false nine team to the Haaland team. Um, and, you know, also to go back to what I said about the FA Cup semi-finals and City squads maybe feeling numerically thin at this time of year, 
that's obviously numerically thin by design. Guardiola likes to work with a small group so he can get across these fairly complex tactical uh, systems and instructions to them. If you have a big weighty squad with like, I remember the old phrase at the start of the Abu Dhabi era was wanting two world-class players for every position. Guardiola can't work like that. He has to work with 16 Mm. or 17 tops and it's got to be 16 or 17 all with the buy-in. Now, Again, like we've talked about, you can't convince Mares to be the happy guy when he's on the bench. Cancelo's moved on. But I think it's the, the fact that he's managed to get the, both get his ideas across and he's also managed to get sort of an emotional buy-in from everyone. And that all comes together. It's like, it, you know, we talk about, like, we'll move on to talking about Akanji at left-back and things like that, and you think the squad is thin in various places. But if the squad was better stocked in the way a lot of fans would like... I don't think you get to this sort of performance peak because it needs to be 16 or 17 players with a few of the backups been square pegs in round holes, but all totally bought in. And as Chris was alluding to, on Wednesday night, it was abundantly clear that just everyone was absolutely on it. I think going back to that Tottenham game where he didn't recognise his team, I think an underrated massive moment of this season is when he called them all out for leaving Rico Lewis to get a bit battered by Hoiberg. Mm. Because mm. now, if anyone goes for a player on the pitch, Haaland turns even more into Ivan Drago than he is normally. <laughs> and they're all in there. They're all going... And like Arsenal, it looked like... It did look a little bit like kids trying to fight with their dad at times on Wednesday. There's a lot of, there's a lot of love. Clearly, it's evident on the pitch. There's a lot of love in that squad between players. And like any family where there's love, there's also dynamics that can be challenging. I think, I think it's not folly to suggest that Cancelo had a significantly detrimental impact on that dynamic within that team because they, they will have cared about him. But eventually, like some whining sibling, it's like you need to just give it up. You need to just stop because you're affecting the whole atmosphere. I think him leaving was significant. I also think you can't underplay how important it was that Diash comes back into the fold on a regular basis. Because whilst he's a fantastic cheerleader uh, in, in the dressing room, when he's playing, that's when he makes such, such a big difference. And to extend that family analogy further... I just think that the brothers in arms in Haaland and De Bruyne in the, in, in the last month or so have found a real understanding of how to play with their toys properly and that's having a big impact. So overall, I think that's what shifted is that, is, is that, that sense of togetherness, that love that they've got, that camaraderie has cemented itself now because the, the more disruptive negative elements have been removed and you start and it's bringing it's bringing the best out in every single player and you're right i've my heart fills with pride when i see harlan running over because ben white's giving foden a half time hard time i don't even give a shit what white said to him i just like to see harlan harlan run over and protect his brother in arms in the team so i think what i'm seeing is this incredible camaraderie in in the team i think that's possibly the shift from say that mid-season period okay so let's talk a little bit about the uh, about the football side and and the kind of I'm I'm interested in in where you both think Guardiola finds himself as a coach. I said something on the review after Arsenal, which the more I think about it, the m- the more I feel as though it's true, and that is that I feel as though actually Pep Guardiola is only just entering his peak as a football manager now because. 
for me, there was a there was a dogmatic way in which he approached football, Barcelona through Bayern Munich and his early days at City. Um, and I feel as though whether it's just the addition of Haaland or it's also his own evolution as a coach, I feel as though the manner in which we can beat teams is now very, um, very wide. It's not one way. City will pass their way through you. They'll also go over the top of you. They can play tippy-tappy football. They can also be incredibly aggressive. I feel as though Pep is marrying the best elements of what he has always believed in as a coach with the best elements of needs must for want of a better phrase. Um, Dom, do you see a little bit of that in what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I think, I mean, yeah, he has been quite dogmatic over his career, but one of the reasons he's he's successful is he's never been quite as dogmatic as like maybe Cruyff and Bielsa and his other great influences. There's a great bit in Marty Perrineau's first book where, I forget the game, but basically Bayern were having a bad time and he chucked on Pizarro and Mandzukic and just got balls in the box. And Perra now asked him whether he felt like he'd gone against his principles and his values and his beliefs to do that. And Pep's response is, fuck off, mate, we had to win the game. So <laughs> he's always had that in him. But I think in the press conference after the Arsenal game, where he said he exp- his reasons for sp- he explained the reasons for picking a Kanji ahead of Laporte and sort of bad faces and Laporte aside, I just felt thought that was very significant that he said Laporte is the best player in the squad in the build-up in that position, but he needed a defender, he needed a 1v1 duels, and that sort of, that back three or four, however you line it up from game to game, with Diaz as the rock in the middle of it, with Stones having a great season, with Ake or Akanji in there, it's just defenders who defend, and yeah, sure, they can play their football, but I think that feels like a change in emphasis. I think previously it would have been Let's get a footballer in the back four and we can teach Fabian Del for Alexander Zinchenko or Fernandinho how to defend. Now it's, let's get these lads who are warriors defensively and we'll work on them on the ball and we'll drop Rodri and Gundian to help them out, but let's get, get that in there. I think looking ahead to the Champions League, he's always talked about those games being lost in both boxes. I can't think of a Guardiola City team that has been stronger in both boxes, both in terms of 1v1 defending and well, Haaland. Yeah. Chris, um, what does... So, I was quite interested in how much I've been obsessed with the 3-2 build-up all season. And we go into the game on Wednesday now, which is our biggest game of the season, and Pep throws a curveball. He plays with a really flat back four. Mm. Um, and KDB explained quite um, succinctly after the game why they'd done that. Um what does that tell us about what, where Pep is a, as a coach and, and how we sort of view him? I think to echo what Dom is saying here, that is, Guardio will know when to abandon his, his kind of, you know, dad in the wool principles if he needs to w- win a game. But where he's, where he's, and you're right, I think we're seeing a Guardiola now that not even he's really planned for because of the longevity of his stay with us and, and the tools that he's got at, at his d- disposal. And I think that it, you look at the current, look at the way we played against, um, uh, um, against Arsenal and, and, and also when we played against 
Bayern as well. Three key things that six years ago would have been anathema to, to Guardiola. That's like playing, playing a long ball up top. He would never do that. Having a tall, rangy striker who's not as technically good as a small midfielder or a false nine. Um, and also last-ditch tackles from people like Diaz and Akanji. Six years ago, that's anathema to Guardiola. He just doesn't play that way. As he said after that terrible loss to Leicester in, uh, what was it, 2020, he says, you know, what are tackles? And, or, or 2016, whatever it was. What are tackles? So he has changed c- considerably. But the back four... That's that switch from from the back three, well, fluid back three to, to to a back four. For me, was predominantly about breaking the press and allowing more options to 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 break through the the, the front three of Arsenal. But what it also shows is that I think Guardiola has even usurped his own thinking, his own his own approach to to tactics on the pitch. Is that he will change accordingly? What's critical? is that he's got those players to the point that they can change at the drop of a hat. I'm confident that Guardiola could walk into the dressing room five minutes before they walk out for the first half and say, lads, I'm just going to switch it now. We're actually going to go to a back four and I'm going to play two up front and guys. And they could adapt immediately. Mm. And I think, I think that's what's changed is, is, is the, the language of Guardiola that most players take at least a season to be able to translate properly and then listen to it instinctively. Every player on that pitch and at least four of them on the bench now no, no longer need a translator. They can adapt immediately. And you just hear, even listen to John Stone's talk. I mean, that, that's not detrimental to John Stone's. But even when the way he t- articulates about what the tactics and the approach were, what you, what you are hearing are a squad of supremely football-intelligent players. And I think that's what he's got now. He doesn't have a Lionel Messi in there. Instead, what he's got are players who are now acutely intelligent and can adapt to his tactics. And I think that's what's changed. So he can afford then to switch tactics, make a few tweaks now and again, and it will, it will, no, it will no longer bemuse and confuse the players because they are at a level. That's the big difference I think in terms of playing personnel between us and, say, Arsenal on Wednesday, is we are just, we've now got players who are masters of the craft. I've never seen anything like it, and, and this is not hyperbole. I genuinely am excited for the rest of the season. I'm even more excited for next season to see how he can progress this even further. Mm. Um, Dom, I want to chat a little bit about a few individuals from, from the Arsenal game, and I feel as though there's no better place to start than a Kanji. Um, Obviously, he he stepped in at, at left back and and performed really well. Uh, he's been somebody that everybody has been, or I say everybody. A lot of the supporter base have been very skeptical of, um, and I found myself not skeptical of him almost from the day he arrived. I thought, wow, he's a top player, um, and he has. I don't know. He just from day one, he showed a, a a pedigree that I just thought, yeah, he was born to play in a in a Guardiola back four. So, where are you? How was your kind of evol? What's the evolution of your opinion of Akanji over the season? Well, I thought he flew out of the blocks in his first few games. He looked very, very impressive in those, like doing a lot of defending on the front foot, carrying the ball out, like things that Guardiola values, but. 
Speaking to, so I've got a colleague who used to live in Switzerland, so I like follow Swiss football quite closely and their players and like looking around some lads that watch the Bundesliga. One of the doubts around him was his sort of, for want of a better world, his old fashioned defending, his blocks, his defending crosses, like when you have to fall deep. And it was like the way Guardiola played seemed to give a perfect platform for all the things he was good at and he didn't have to do much of the things he wasn't so good at. Then during that slump in the middle of the season, he was having to do some of that stuff and I don't think he was doing it particularly well. I think um, United's winner in the derby, Old Trafford, stands out as just slightly switched off, slightly soft defending. Um, but now we're in a situation where he's getting picked against Arsenal because of his supreme performance in the duels against Coleman and Musiala and Sane. So that bit of the game looks to be in order as well. So it's an overall package and like he's... Um, yeah, he just gets on with it, doesn't he? And he was so in, he he did mix on on Wednesday as well, and was talking about he was asked about Haaland in training, and he said, "To be honest, we don't really get to train much this time of the season anyway." Which then made me think to ask, uh, "How many times did you train at left back?" And he uh, he played there. He played in left back at training the day before the game, like one session, and got a hunch he was going to start there. And he's played it by his own count. He's played at left back twice in his career for Dortmund. Just steps in there in a title decider and does it in an exemplary fashion to the point he's behind De Bruyne, maybe City's best player, arguably. Um, it's a uh, yeah, what what an impressive bloke, really. And he does seem made to measure for what Guardiola wants out of his defenders at this point in Guardiola's evolution that we've just talked about. Yeah, Chris, chime in on 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 a Kanji. I'm I'm interested in your the, the sort of the evolution of your opinion i mean i think i think it, it does refer back to what i said is that akanji has become that player where you can give him a remit five minutes five hours five days before and he'll adjust to it effortlessly he looked like he'd play there all season um there's when when you hear akanji talk that, that there's a clear emotional intelligence about him as well it isn't just that this kind of mathematic skill that he has where he can calculate huge figures really quick. Have you seen him do that? He calculates yeah, it's huge yeah, it's just like, okay, so, so there's something going on underneath the bonnet with this guy. And I think that that will have been a significant thing, is that in relative prices, he was so cheap, he was recommended. So, so he's, he's, he's brought certain basic attributes that Guardiola says, that's fine, I can mould the rest. And, and, and I think that he, you know, he, he's come into... Uh, well, basically, I would say he, more than any other defender in our squad, has has taken um, Laporte out of the picture. Because, because Laporte now just, sadly, just seems like history. Um, and, and I think Kanji is the one who's been most responsible. Because when he's been playing at the level that he's been playing at... With, with the demands that, that, that we've had and the key games that we've had more recently... He has he he's become undroppable, and in that in, and in a lineup like that in that back four, that's quite an achievement for somebody who hasn't been at the club very long and doesn't have Guardiola's approach embedded um, in in his in his football brain. So, I have a lot of time for him, and I think when he first came, I thought he was a little bit of a utility defender, but then with Guardiola, that's no longer an underhand compliment, that's actually a massive strength that you can move around that, that back line and you can play wherever you need to play. Quite simply, you can put a kanji in any of those four back, 
back four positions. He's made himself almost undroppable. And in, you compare what he's offered and what he cost. Smart recruitment by, by the club. He's, he's been an absolute star throughout the entire season. Yeah, I, I put on Twitter the other day, I think after Haaland, I think he's pound for pound the signing of the season in the Premier League. Mm. Just, if you look at the minutes played, um, the impact that he's had since he's arrived and his transfer fee, nobody, nobody comes close to that, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, that, that would be my view on, on, on his impact. Uh, Dom, Kyle Walker, was Wednesday a reminder of his value on the pitch to City and as a kind of little follow-up how much of his banishment do you think has been really genuinely down to tactical stuff and how much of it do you think was down to off the field stuff um I think on the banishment I don't know it's hard to say It's it's probably a little from column A a little from column B but I don't think it takes you know a sort of an expert in human behaviour to spot that the off-field stuff has really not gone down very well with Pep in the slightest. Um, but yeah, it, it his performance on Wednesday was good insofar as when you look at there's Real Madrid and most notably Vinicius coming up. The good thing about Walker, and we saw this in the World Cup when he wasn't fit to start with and then got dropped in and did a good job on Mbappe, is... He's not one of these players that seems to need games. It's like you can sort of put him in as like a sort of, you know, you have one job and one job only for a specific game and he can get there. It's not like he he's one of these players that seems to need rhythm. He, he, you put him in and he'll do a job and that's fine. I do think with the way the, the 3-2 build-up that's predominantly been used, I think the Team City are is maybe evolving away from him in the way that in an attacking sense it evolved away from what, Raheem Sterling bought. I think he, I think Walker's yeah. maybe in that point of his City career that Sterling was over his last couple of years at City. But that doesn't mean Walker can't still have really great memorable nights like Sterling had last season. But I think, I think we're reaching end game with Walker. I think if he's there next season, there's probably not a contract extension. But it's handy for him that if he is going to still be around, you can parachute him in and he does the job, you know, to a T. Do you think that he stays uh, next season or do you think that City would look to move him on this summer? I guess the trickiness with moving anyone on from City is where does he go? Um, There are a small number of elite clubs in England and Europe who can get players of Kyle Walker's calibre and wages. Um, Of course, the great fairy tale would be him going to Sheffield United, but he'd be doing that on a drastic pay cut. Um, because of the state of the big clubs in Europe, the major options for City to move players onto are Premier League rivals. And even though it's all rosy in the garden now with the Premier League, and I totally understand the decisions that saw Jesus and Zinchenko go to Arsenal, they made sense. I don't think those are like massive balls ups, as people said they were at the time. But the way this season's unfolded means I think City will have a little bit more pause in letting a valuable player go to a big six rival so I think he probably is around next season because I'm not sure where he goes elsewhere really yeah I saw the links were were in Italy but I'd rather keep oh yeah yeah Milan I'd forgotten about that yeah maybe who knows yeah yeah but I just I just think from a from a an evolution point of view 
you don't want i feel as though there'll be a lot of outgoings which we'll talk about later uh, in the summer I, I wouldn't be adding walker to that list um chris a little a little kdb and harland love after wednesday is this the most formidable attacking one two that we've had since the peak sterling sane season it's just it's just so i think the the comparisons are almost redundant because it just feels really different I, I was watching so I, i'm in the south stand so the so city were attacking the goal in front of me and the, the moment i mean how we how we almost went in a half time 1-0 i don't know um, because we had so many great opportunities there was something about watching them that and I'm watching it from an opposition's point of view or an opposition's team's point of view. I remember reading about when, when Hungary played England in the 50s and they destroyed them 7-2 at Wembley. And Stanley Matthews said it was like watching aliens on the pitch. We'd never seen anything like it. I looked at KDB and Haaland on Wednesday and I'm not, and I'm not exaggerating. There was moment, and it's, it's to do with the fact that, the, you know, the sort of the stature, the contrast, you know, the sort of hair colour, all that sort of stuff, aesthetically. They looked like they were on a different planet, those two. And, and every time they came forward, there was a sense of inevitability, particularly when De Bruyne scored that first goal, which he had no right to score. No one else in the Premier League is scoring that, that, that kind of goal. So the combination of those two things are just extraordinary. And I think that... It, for me, it offers something that I'd never anticipated. I'd always assumed that, that KDB would, would be you know, locked into that midfield, constantly assisting, but he's finding so much many more dynamics to the offer that he can put on the pitch. So what I want to see, though, is I want to see this kind of continue into next season because it's such a powerful combination. But yeah, I've just never seen anything like it. And both of them are clearly getting the best out of each other. It's a perfect synchronicity between the two of them. It was extraordinary to, to watch. I just wish they'd scored more goals as a, as, as a result of the combination of their play together. Dom, who do you reckon's a bigger City fan, Foden or Haaland? Haaland, <laughs> uh, he's six foot five. <laughs> <laughs> but he, obviously, Haaland is more visible than it. You've probably seen the clip of him singing the Johnny Johnny yeah. Storm song. Right? I have. <laughs> um, what do you do with that? It's like that. Is, it's kind of like a fan's dream, isn't it? That this fanboy on the pitch is singing a song that's come from the terraces. It just doesn't, doesn't get better than that. Well, I think there's a. I think actually there's a wider conversation around Haaland, and that is that as far as superstars go, and let's be very clear, Haaland is at the top table of mm -hmm. superstars in 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 world football um he seems incredibly professional and incredibly down to earth and almost i almost feel as though he he gets a lot of headlines but he maybe doesn't get mbappe or messi level of headlines because his ego isn't actually mm. that big um chris do you see that oh god he's he he looks like if, if any of us here today were talented enough and fit enough to get selected by Guardiola to play in a big game, how we would feel playing that game. That's what he looks like. Constantly smart. He is a dream of a teammate 
because he knows his profile globally. He knows his value and he knows that, that he, he, is, he is one of the key differences this summer that may, may lead us to European glory. Yeah. But that is not evident in any of his, of his behaviour. It's not evident in the fact that he's our most lethal striker, but if somebody else scores, he's, he's as delighted for them as if he scored it himself. He, he's, had a, he's, had, he's had such a positive impact on the dynamic of that team, you can see. And I think, I think, it's, I think it's unique amongst that top table of elite players where there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no moodiness. There doesn't feel like there's any media-trained diplomacy there. He knows how to conduct himself. If you saw the interview that he did, I think was it against Leeds with Thierry Henry and was it Roy Keane as well? He knows how to conduct himself as well. He's a well-brought-up kid. Mm. And, and, and when you see somebody of that prowess on a domestic and European stage, yet with so, he has a strange combination of utter arrogance and belief combined with modesty and 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 um, uh, grace like grace and and gratitude to his teammates uh, as well so he if he was a different character he could have been hugely disruptive particularly when when he went through that slightly barren spell when he wasn't scoring much and the team weren't really weren't really servicing properly he didn't. He, he, he only ever showed it very briefly. It was, was on frustration. So I think, again, we, 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 we've been, you know, it, it's a gift that he has that personality. But that's, that's not an accident. City would not have bought him if he, they didn't think his personality would fit in and he could adapt and he had the, the, no, that maturity. I, I think even Guardiola's been surprised by just how down to earth he is, how yeah. professional he is, how much of a joy he is to work with. Um, I'll make a bold prediction. If City go, if City do somehow end up doing the treble, he wins the Ballon d'Or, which would be pretty wild in his first yeah. season at City. It's, decent. it's not about because the Ballon d'Or is all about hyperbole, isn't it? And it's all Absolutely. about Europe. It's all Absolutely. about Europe. Absolutely. Champions League. So if he did that, yeah, I think that's, that's a decent show. Yeah. Um, Dom, I put in the agenda what's gone wrong at Arsenal, and actually that's really unfair. The question I've got for you is: Has something gone wrong at Arsenal, or is this kind of reversion a reversion to a mean that was always expected because they'd overachieved massively over the course of the season probably a little bit I mean this is a bit simplistic but losing Saliba has been massive I I think with Saliba in the team and the form City are on City win that game on Wednesday regardless but if Saliba's around they don't draw against Hampton and West Ham, I don't believe. Uh, like they, they had Jesus out for a chunk of the season and there was a big worry in Ketty wouldn't step up and he did. The drop-off from Saliba to Rob Holding is just too much to sustain, I think. Um, in terms of, because there's like the, the chat of them bottling it and thing gets, gets thrown around, but I think where you're at with Arsenal is their title bid has been very emotional. It's like, I know some people outlandishly compared it to Leicester in 2016, which is ludicrous. It's Arsenal. That Leicester thing was just on its own trip. But at various points, they've reminded me of the Rodgers Liverpool team in 2013-14, in terms of like an unexpected run. And a little bit of Mancini's 2011-12 City, that it was a big emotional thing. And you, obviously, mm. you remember that City title race. There were points where it almost went off the rails, where it was also amped up. And the thing is, I think... Arsenal needed to do that. It was like a lightning in a bottle thing. 
to propel themselves. They got to this point by being very emotional. But I remember thinking around the time they got those late wins against Villa and Bournemouth, it's like, it's very early to be doing this, to be having these these games and these big emotional outpourings. Sometimes you just need to park it and win 2-0. And so I think the thing that's propelled them this close is also what's undermined them a bit. And I think you saw that in some of the, some of the sort of, you know, it kicking off the ball a bit. The last 20 minutes on Wednesday night, I think that all did catch up a little bit. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I, I do think they're a bit too emotional. I, I also, I feel as though as much as it's about the players, it's about the manager. I, I, I think that Arteta, a lot of his messaging um, has been a bit strange. I think in, going into the City game, he'd said in the press conference, I'll kill my players if they're nervous. It's just such a weird thing to say from my point of view because it's such a young team. I think you've got to embrace the nerves rather than this idea that, well, you have to go and match City. That's not really realistic. City have got a squad full of players that have got half a decade of experience at doing exactly this thing and your lads have never done this before. It's normal for them to be nervous and a bit anxious. And actually, the the manner in which he talked for me was just a little too, yeah, a little a little bit too emotional. Chris, what about for you? I think yeah, I think emotion does play a part, and I think Don makes a really good point about you know that, that there's that, that you, you can you can look back at previous seasons and see moments of fragility. Even for us in eleven twelve, there's a couple of moments in eleven twelve that I thought that the title was gone. I thought the wheels had come off completely. But with Arsenal, what I though those loss that loss against sorry the draw against Liverpool, the draw against um, West Ham. Southampton was different because Southampton kind of you know mugged them in the first half of the game really. But against Liverpool and against West Ham, um, you saw what I can't can only put down to what was complacency. They take an early two 0 lead, particularly against against Liverpool. It just felt if you thought, okay, if this continues, this this is going to be embarrassing for Liverpool, and it's very possible that Arsenal players thought the same thing. If this continues, we'll destroy them. So what we'll do is we'll just take off off the pedal a little bit, and you do that at your own risk with someone like Liverpool. Less so with West Ham recently, but West Ham came back into it. So I think I think that that there was. A complacency there, which is which. I th- I, to what extent do the players start to believe their own hype? To to what extent is there a mental facility there enough for them to be able to to respond? Mm. And when they have responded, for example, against Bournemouth, they've done it in dramatic last minute fashion, which is great. If you win a game, if you win a title in the last minute, if you win a cup in that in the last minute, there's nothing like it in terms of emotion. But long term, it's it's not a sustainable approach, and they they showed they didn't have the mental fortitude to be able to rescue the game against Liverpool and rescue the the game against West Ham. When simply with with City on your tail, you can't a draw's not enough. I remember uh, when Trent Alexander-Arnold nutmegged Zinchenko. And he goes, then he's taken off, he's on the bench and he's in tears. I don't think he's in tears because he's been nutmeg. I don't think he's in tears because they dropped two points against Liverpool when they were dominating the first half of the game. I think he's in tears because he knows who is chasing them. 
And having spent several years in that city dressing room, he, he knows that they, they are relentless and they will not stop. So I think what you could say is, what's, what's gone wrong at Arsenal is that they don't yet possess the, that mental acumen that City do have based on the experience of having several close title run-ins at the end of seasons. And it's just I think, a, Sorry, I, I, I think I think they learned from last season and applied their lessons to this season. They will learn from this season and apply their lessons to, to, to next season. And I think Arteta is an intelligent enough individual to look back and think, how could I have done this differently? But there, are, there is not quite the steeliness there to get them over the line where you've got to be workmanlike about it. And that's, you're right, Rodgers, Liverpool of 13-14, that's what they lacked. They, they, they possessed the fireworks but they lack the extinguisher to put the fire out when it gets out of hand, and I think Arsenal are the <laughs> same like way. That. I like that analogy. Um, right, Dom, you were in the mix zone with Bernardo Silva on Wednesday night, weren't you? Was indeed. Excellent. Well, we're going to have a little listen to Bernardo Silva in the mix zone after the Arsenal game, and then we'll be right back to talk about the summer transfer season. Kyle Walker has just told us that he is trying to do something great this season. Is it time that we talk about the travel? Well, it's time to focus on the next next game, which is Fulham away. But of course, the travel the travel is still on uh, because we're still in three in three competitions. We're in the semi-finals of the Champions League, final of the FA Cup, and now with this win, we're in a very good position to go and fight for this Premier League. So let's focus on Sunday because it's very tough to play in in Fulham, and um, we need that win to, to stay in this good position to win this Premier League. Uh, did the big game experience tonight really come come through and shine through against the Arsenal team that's had a great season but just don't have that kind of experience like you guys? Well, maybe, maybe yes. Uh, maybe just the momentum of both teams. They come from a momentum of drawing a few games. So, uh, so it, wasn't, it wasn't probably the best the best momentum for them to come here, which is great. You know, it's not easy to come to the end. And... Um, and yeah, we did it very well. Kevin was on fire today. <laughs> We're happy that we got the three points. And Kevin and Erling seem to really rip out apart with their central runs today and really ran at the Arsenal defence. Is that a clear game plan? Well, uh, yeah, we, we knew that they could have come. They could have come doing man-to-man. And uh, we tried to stretch them as, as, as much as possible because if they do man-to-man against us, you have to deal with Kevin and Erling Allen. Up front is never going to be easy, and that's what we try to do today, to leave them alone, give them as much space as possible for them to run and to create chances, and they did it perfectly. What is it that Kevin has in these big games? Like last season, he scored early goals against Madrid, United, Liverpool, did it again tonight, he sets the tone, I mean, he's massive on these occasions, isn't he? Well, he is, and today, once again, as I said, this game was perfect for Kevin, because they did man-to-man, they gave space to Kevin and to Erling to, to run, when you give them this kind of space, they're, they're so difficult to defend. They're two, they're two beasts running, their movements, Kevin with the passes, Erling with the scoring today was the opposite, but um, yeah, as I said, knowing that they would come man-to-man, we tried to stretch, stretch them as much as possible to give the big man, the big man uh, as much space as possible to run, and they did it perfectly. They, they created lots of chances, we could have scored even more. And uh, yeah, very happy with the performance. Bernardo, how do you like? Because obviously, 
You've got a major advantage in the title race now. How do you guard against complacency or thinking that it's already... Because everything's been well, building up never, to this game. It's never, it's never done until it's done in the Premier League. We've got, we've got to play against Fulham away. Now we have Everton and Leeds and then we have tough games like Everton away, Brighton away, Brentford away, Chelsea at home. They as well have tough games. So... It will be finished when it's finished, and we're gonna we're not gonna be complacent, and um, we're gonna take this job very seriously, and try to win every game. Focused in Fulham now, away tough game, and game by game we're gonna be closer to to our goal. Has there been any? I know you talked about the treble before. Has the manager sort of banned any talk of the treble in the dressing room? No, he hasn't banned everything. Anything. <laughs> we're big, we're big, we're big. Uh, we're big men and we talk about whatever we want, but these players know that the best way to achieve good things is to think just about the next one. Because yeah. if we don't beat Fulham, we put ourselves in a difficult position to win the Premier League. And if we don't win the Premier League, we arrive in the final of the FA Cup and in the semi-final of the Champions League, not in a good momentum. And we want to stay in this good momentum to try and go as far as possible and the team is doing very well at, 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 at the moment and we're going to try and keep it that way. Actually about the long unbeaten run, can you like, describe how, how and why the performance has changed? Well, I don't, know. To click from... I don't know, we changed the way we play because we never had this kind of player up front with Erling and the manager and also the build-up changed a little bit from the past years. So, yeah, maybe it took us a bit of time to get used to it. And maybe it was just uh, the momentum, as I said. I remember um, in, my, in my second seasons, we were 10 points behind Liverpool as well. And we beat them to win the title. And uh, we've always had these moments of unbeaten runs of 15, 20 games. And it, it, it came in, a, in an important part of the season, uh, happily. And uh, we have to keep it that way, because if we don't keep it that way, the effort is for nothing, because we can win the three competitions, yes, it's true, but we can also lose the three competitions. So we have to be very alert to do our best and, and stay focused. It's to be like a 26-27 game will be a run to win the three competitions. We have to be on the longest unbeaten. Yeah, let's try that, <laughs> let's try that. We know it's not going to be easy, and maybe we won't win every game, but as I said, Fulham now. And uh, after Fulham, we'll think about the next one, the next one, and the next one. Right now, Fulham, which is a very tough opponent. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And we're back. That was Bernardo Silva. And now we are going to look forward to the summer. Um, a lot of chat around what the squad may or may not need. What I'm interested in, actually, um, Chris, I'm going to start with you. Have our performances in the last month changed your views on what the summer window should be? Uh, I think around personnel. Uh, well, okay, two things then. I would say that um, if Guardiola is no longer interested in traditional fullbacks, don't buy any. And, and invest in, if, if we're going to lose Laporte, then invest in another centre-back mm. if, we're, if we're going to continue with that. D don't, don't, don't invest in another, in another fullback. Because uh, other than Cal Walker, we've not had a great deal of success with it. It's more to do with the players who have, who have been very verbal about wanting to leave or have expressed uh, an ambiguity about whether they're going to leave or not because of the contract situation. 
have performed excellently. So Bernardo Silva has shown his incredible value and his worth, and so has Gundogan. And I think Laporte is evident, as I said earlier, that Guardiola probably no longer sees him in his plans, and that's po- that's post- and that's more to do with who else is in the squad, not to do with Laporte. We know Laporte is a quality s- s- centre back, but I, but I would say that that we. For me, the priority places are the places where we where we're going to lose, and it's and it's remained the same for me. It's now as it was at the beginning of the season, is that if we lose Gundo, we need another n- number eight in there, um, and I think we need another winger because it's uh, you know we 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 might lose Bernardo, Mares might become a little bit kind of concerned that he's not getting uh, uh, enough enough minutes as, as, as he's anticipated. And Grealish now, we suddenly see what Grealish's impact is and, and the role that he plays. I think the one that is a slight riddle to me is, this, is the central defensive midfielder role. Because, he, you know, he's come in and, and, and he's not been successful because he's not, been a, he's not had game time. How how do you how do you usurp Rodri in in that in that situation? So my problem is is what do we do in that position? Because right now, if we lose Rodri, we don't have somebody who's a capable deputy. Despite buying somebody last summer, that that is a concern for me because Guardiola plays Rodri all the time, and it's quite difficult then to nurture and develop another holding midfielder if they're not going to get minutes. So, so I don't quite know how, how he solves that riddle. Dom, do you think that Calvin Phillips is toast at Man City? It's your catchphrase now, isn't it? Um, it is I think it's hard to see a way back at the moment. And I know we always talk about a second season at City and you learn under Guardiola, but all of those players like started a Premier League game. Um, it's a shame. I, I thought that signing was perfect made to measure. A guy who's played mm. under Bielsa who understands a lot of similar, you know, and Bielsa is a different coach to Pep, but there are some crossover concepts in there. Um, I like him a lot as a player, but he did have injury problems before he got there. His injury problems came back. And I think the, um, maybe we might look back on as the death knell of his City career is coming back from the World Cup overweight. I mean, that's, it's unforgivable really. Um, You look at, the like after the World Cup, Guardiola switched this. The you know, he's used a three-two build-up before, but this idea of going with that, not really having full-backs, games like Wednesday where he just does play two defensive midfielders in front of the back four. There is nothing that should have stopped Calvin Phillips being in the conversation for those games, but you know he's now not trusted to start an FA Cup semi-final against a Championship team. It's it's not gone very well at all. So I think. There could be an there could be an element of everyone cuts their losses, and I think the reason they might be more tempted to do that is they might. I, I believe there's a Romeo Lavia buyback, and Southampton are going down, and I think that that looks like a fairly obvious join the dots one of us. If there's somewhere to want to take Phillips off City's hands, they bring Lavia back in. That probably works quite well for all concerned. Don, Don, can I ask you this then? That I think a significant um, um, part of Ankanji's progress in this team is the number of minutes that he's played. He's he's had minutes. He's had a significant run in the team, and you know if you've played football, if you play a lot, if you the more football you play, the better you get at it. Um, if if Phillips was given 
a comparable amount of minutes that Akanji's had, do, do you think he would be capable of reaching the heights of that critical role in City's team that we would require, kind of Rodri-level role? Do you think he's capable of it? It's hard because Akanji has got his minutes by playing centre-back, right of a back three, right back and laterally left back. For Phillips, he's probably going to have to play instead of Rodri, but there's been a lot of times where there's been someone tucked in there with Rodri all season. That guy could have been Calvin Phillips at various points. What Akanji's done is he's turned up fit and healthy and done all that's asked of him away from the gate, the pitch and he's got minutes. Unfortunately, when you hear the story of Calvin Phillips coming back from the World Cup not fit, then he's not done himself any favours. And I know he's had... He's, had, he's been really unlucky with injuries. I feel for the guy. I like him as a player. He seems like a really nice kid. But look at him and Grealish after the World Cup. Grealish came back in the best physical condition of his career. I think he said so himself. And look what's happened there. Mm. And I know him and Phillips different stages of, the, different stages of the, their development. I feel for Phillips. But there is no way it was the plan that we got to late April. And Calvin Phillips having not started a Premier League game. And unfortunately... I think too much of that is on Phillips for him to have a way back. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I I would go along with that. I do. So, Dom, sticking with the transfer theme and sticking with you for a moment, um, as our sort of media representative. Uh, tin hat, go on. Yeah, <laughs> tin hat on, get ready. So, Gundo is leaving on a free. I think it's pretty widely accepted that that'll get announced when the season ends. Phillips looks like he could go. Bernardo Silva, there is still talk that he could go. <laughs> Groundhog Day. Yeah, in the summer. Um, Laporte is obviously going to leave in the summer. Joao Cancelo is obviously going to leave in the summer. Our city... Where... Where are City in terms of, as an organisation, are they prepared for this, in your opinion? Or are they sleepwalking into issues again next season? That is a lot more movement than City normally have Agreed. in a summer. Um, as to go back to what we talked about earlier of the idea of the squad being light, I think there, there comes a point where you have to always accept the squad will feel light too, in terms of list of names on the page because that's how Guardiola works um, sleepwalking might be harsh because I think probably the way that Gundian and Bernardo have, have thought about their next moves there's no question the club want to keep you know would like to keep both of them but you know they're both getting to a, a point in their career where you know Bernardo's wanted to move a couple of times Gundian you know there's a piece that um, Mark Critchley's done today on his like aspirations to be like a really good coach You'd imagine part of that for Gundy, and he's like, right, last sort of big move, let's go somewhere else, experience new things, you know. That's where he's at. I think losing both Gundy and Bernardo as two guys who seem as in tune as you could possibly imagine with Guardiola football, I think that's a really tough thing to fix and to work around. I don't I don't think it's a thing that Jude Bellingham on his own fixes, for example. Um, yeah, I'd, all the others you, you listed... I think are absorbable. The idea of losing Gundian and Bernardo together in the same summer, I don't think that's a thing that gets solved purely in terms of incomings. I think maybe you get to a point where, because we talked about how well the squad understand Guardiola and each other and that spirit in there. If they both left, I think maybe you see 
Grealish and Foden play centrally more, and that's why buying a winger is really important because you can sort of blood a winger a bit. I think it's going to be as much those guys who know Guardiola's concepts. You know, McAtee might come back and get some minutes, but yeah, th- those two leaving seems like a looming big klaxon that I'm not sure there's a complete solution for. No, which is why I think that they um, throw money at Bernardo Silva until he says, "Yeah, okay, I'll I'll stay." I think that's the, and, and actually, you don't even need to do that. He's got two years left on his deal. I think what you do is you say to Bernie, we want you to stay. We, we're not going to accept offers for you. Um, the, the thing is with Bernardo that's pretty clear as well is he can clearly comp- compartmentalise this yeah. stuff. It's that's funny this. for a guy who's, who's big mates with Joao Cancelo. He's, in terms of mentality around these things, he must be the polar opposite. He's wanted to leave for about three years, but you just get the absolute maximum out of him all the time. Um, Absolutely. he can park it some players perhaps understandably can't I mean again this is this is sort of assuming things not to read too much into the mix zones Gundian's a guy that used to do an awful lot of mix zones I can't re- and I don't go to every game but it's been a while since he stopped doing doing the interviews and you think maybe he doesn't want to do a mix zone because he's going to get asked about his future and he doesn't want to say anything Bernardo you can't you can't keep him away from having a chat after a game you know so <laughs> Again, it's like, yeah, he might be leaving. He might get questions about his future, but he's just he's locked into the game. He loves talking about football. Yeah, it, it's kind of been interesting because Gundian was one of the old reliables, but I haven't seen a lot of him lately. And maybe he's thinking the last thing he wants now is questions about his future. Bernardo now doesn't really get asked about his future, as you heard in the audio. It's like he's just, it's all on till May, and then we'll dance the same PSG Barcelona dance again, and then he's probably there in August again. Hopefully. Lovely. Right, Chris, a couple of things before we hear from Alan, the Fulham fan. Um, I, see that, I see that the media coverage is becoming incredibly weird and negative around City. Journalists losing their heads. Mm. Thoughts, feelings, are we beginning? I, my sense is that the supporter base are beginning to rise above all of that stuff now. I think we're all at a point where we, we actually find it funny. Um, do you find it funny or does it still bother you? I'm, I'm conflicted according to what I read, I guess. I mean, overall, I don't care because they're just they're just like kind of frustrated men shouting at clouds, really. I think, I think the Bar- Barney Roney article this morning, or I don't know if it was last night, but I read it this morning. I mean that's that's tantamount to to a journalist trying to gaslight a Premier League fan base effectively, to just turning heads, trying trying to get fans of other clubs to to think in a different way, effectively trying to tool them up with uh, with a, with a series of arguments that they can throw at any City fan. Should we be hyper successful at the end of the season? Um, I think that that. If if we consider the agenda around it, and the agenda is there, I guess they've got nowhere else to go now. There's something horribly for them, horribly inevitable about what may happen with City uh, for, for you know for possibly at least the title, um, and possibly in Europe as well, possibly in in the FA Cup. So I'm not surprised by it at all. But I just 
I just it's easy to demonize the the, 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 the these, these writers and these journalists but ultimately that that you know that they're, they're professionals who should have a love of the game I just wonder what Barney Roney says to himself in the mirror in the morning when he's going to write this article does he actually believe it to what extent is he following a directive from his from it his editor how far is this an opinion piece and how far is this an advocacy piece for for a certain agenda that, that, that's going out so i guess i'm being slightly drawn towards those sort of internal politics of what's going on within those media outlets but no I, i'm not surprised i and i don't really care i, I just think it, it's 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 really a sad indictment on of certain corners of the the media who, who fail to be objective uh, because match reporting is now obsolete and they have to discover a way to, to to be relevant so yeah it's depressing but it doesn't it doesn't depress me effectively dom as a city fan in the media where do you fall? I mean, I, obviously, I feel very strongly and I'm quite vocal about the fact that uh, there is quite clearly an editorial agenda when it comes to City uh, at various different platforms and, and news organisations. And also, uh, there are a selection of football writers who simply refuse to give City any credit on a, on a sporting level. And if they do, it seems to be through gritted teeth. Um, I can't stand it and I can't stand them. And I think that it's kind of reached this weird, almost like Fox news and Donald Trump level of surrealness where it doesn't matter what happens there. They will only ever um, talk about it through a very, very, very narrow prism. Um, so yeah, as a, as a supporter who is also inside the media, um, do I need to take a wider view or am I right in how I feel? Um, I'm not going to tell you how to think or feel or anything. I don't think that's, that's, that's my job or anyone's job. People all have their own experience of things they read and they could, you know, they come to a conclusion on it. I mean, I'm not going to be here and say there's not an agenda. There isn't, but I understand why people think there is. Um, in terms of, so, I would say like journalists and media people, probably no one consumes more media and journalism than journalists and media people. So I read an awful lot of what's written about City. Um, and I can kind of slice it into two parts. Um, if people are writing about, okay, I'll start with elements of City coverage that irritates me is when I think that what Guardiola has done doesn't get isn't getting due sort of attention because it's it's an incredible sporting feat to have so all the time then so then all the time because he never gets any credit that's that's the root of my issue sorry okay okay all right well I I still read people that give him plenty of credit you know like so, you know we can talk about and this is you've got to look at the journalists that you, you're sort of reading you know people like people like Sam people like Jack people like Paul Hurst at the times guys who follow City back and forward they're thoroughly appreciative of what he does, appreciate the sporting thing. I think if you go, oh, it's, it's all just... a bit cold and passionless, though. It's all a bit, you know, again, well, well, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to pick an argument with you, but um, I read 
I, I consume a hell of a lot of football media and I think it's quite interesting how uh, traditional football clubs and by traditional clubs, you know, exactly the type of clubs that I'm talking about. They are written about with a level of passion and enthusiasm, whereas City are written about in a very cold and factual manner. And that includes Sam and Jack and Paul and anybody else that you want to line up. There is a complete and utter lack of emotion in the writing. I mean, to be honest, if you've got a problem with, uh, don't want to t- uh, talking about individual journalists, and this is a is a slippery slope. If you've got a problem with how Sam covers City, then I can't. I don't think there's much more I can add to this conversation because that's a guy who is like well in the weeds, obsessed with how Guardiola plays football, loves how Guardiola plays football. I think that comes across. You don't. Okay, so so that's one thing. In terms of articles that irritate, so I think I get irritated when I read, when I listen to, oh, they've just spent money. It's like, no, this is an excellent coach. History will show this is a fine team that stacks up. You know, you get into talks about competition competitive balance. City do spend a lot of money. Other teams spend a lot of money. Some teams spend a lot of money and don't have 40 points yet this season down in West London. So I think that's not great. But I think we're at a point where it, it's all too far gone and too far down the road now that pretty much every bit of City coverage seems to get seems to cause irritation. It's like, for example, if City's ownership and charges against them by the Premier League, previous cases with UEFA are even mentioned, that gets people's back up. And I just think, in terms of your enjoyment of consuming your football team, just accept those things for what they are. You know, we, we can we can get into the technicalities of is it is it state ownership? Is it not technically state ownership? But we know we know where the ownership comes from. We know what the human rights, etc., issues are in those countries. Those are kind of factual. I think if you get annoyed about the ownership being pointed out for being who they are, if you get annoyed for Premier League change, charges being pointed out when they exist, that's just the context in which City are playing. So when I read stuff that mentions that, I mean, if it looks like it's been sort of... Sh- she wanted into the third paragraph. I think it's just crap writing. But stuff that mentions that doesn't irritate me. Stuff that when people go, oh, well, this is just inevitable what City are doing. Honestly, in, if we're going to talk about Barney's piece, the thing where the thing that I think was most off in that was when he said, oh, it's just press play and go. It's like this level of football isn't just press play. There's so much work and detail. And like, I thought City were a thrilling sporting spectacle on Wednesday night. But so, yeah, I, th- I think... Yeah, I talked about Bernardo Silva compartmentalising things. I think there are certain bits of this conversation that, like, there's the sports washing bit, there's the competition bit, there's the Guardiola bit. And I just think that... I don't think anyone's changing anyone's mind now. And I think everyone gets far too worked up and it all becomes part of the same whole. What I would ask... what Sorry, what I would ask to both of you, actually, because genuinely this is probably quite good uh, field work for me, as it were. Um... What does better coverage look like to you? Because I know I'll, I'll finish on the talk now. I know Asan said about um, the coverage of City being cold, but City fans have spent the last five years, I would say, probably well justified, laughing their heads off at ridiculous sort of eulogies to Liverpool. Is better coverage? You want that silly stuff, but with blue tints rather than red That's tints? That's completely unfair. That's completely unfair. I think that... Oh, all right, well, fair enough. I, well, what is better the coverage question. then? What's better coverage? The, let, I'm going to answer the question. Go. So actually, you, you, you're absolutely right in that when I... Let's not make this about 
individual journalists. Let's make it about something completely different. And that is this, that most of what we consider to be the big football clubs in this country are covered at most of the big media platforms by supporters of said club. That colours the coverage that those clubs get. Now, it's very easy, and I've had this thrown at me before, well, do you want that sort of fanzine coverage that Liverpool get? Well, you know what? Maybe I don't want the fanzine coverage, but how about a little bit of balance? How about when things are good, we talk about the good things, and when things are bad, we talk about the bad things? How about we don't lean into the negative at every opportunity that we get given? And I think that that is something that if we had more City fans in the media writing about the club, we would get a little bit more balanced. The reality is, and you know this, because you know all the lads, how many City fans are in the press pack? Genuinely, how many real blues are in the press pack that cover City Weekly? One? Two? Um, max? There's not many, but right. genuinely that but genuinely that doesn't bother me. Um, no, it, it doesn't bother me. It, it bothers me only in so far as... When you contrast the coverage that City get with the coverage that other clubs get, there is a clear, clear difference from the local pack. Fundamentally, there is a difference from the local pack in the way in which United are covered, Liverpool are covered, and then City are covered. Of course I'm going to be asked about that. Of course we're going to be bothered by that. Can I... Sorry, Aysen, because I know this... this I know I passionately feel about this and I think it's really valid and I think Dom you make some valid points and obviously Dom in the same way I don't represent the refereeing for so and so you don't, <laughs> yeah, you don't exactly. represent the, the, you know right so so I'm not laying at your door here right but but I what I would I think the, uh, uh, there's a paradox here which I really struggle with about a year ago I said on this part that I mourn the loss of the experience I used to have reading football journalism particularly in the broadsheets. I don't think it's I don't think it's of the same standard anymore and I think I think it's so it, there's a there's a partisan nature to so much that, that that is written and I do often find that every time I mean I think there's a lot of good coverage of city it's just that the, the, the negative ones often are noisier however more and more now so much of the positivity stuff written about um, city and Guardiola has a caveat attached to it whether it's about ownership of money and I think that you can separate the two things because as city fans we've had to do that because it is a moral dilemma you can separate the two things what I what I do think is problematic and this and and this is where the tribal nature of it, of football, has spilled over, I think, into, into into the media. And maybe it's always been there. Football, of all the sports in the world, is the most Neanderthal in terms of moving into the future and, 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 and modernising. And, and it, that's, you know, that's why uh, technology and VARs came in so late when more antiquated sports like cricket and tennis adopted it decades ago. Is that football is a monolith that refuses to, to move forward at anything but a snail's pace. And, 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 and attached to that is a sense of history and heritage and romanticism. That, I think, says a lot about, about why Liverpool and United get the kind of coverage that they get. Because it harks back to a different era, an era which is historical, where based on a more romantic look at football. Football isn't like that anymore. We know that for the past 30 years, football football's always been about money to some extent, but now it's primarily about money. Every decision that is taken at the highest level of football is usually motivated by money. And I think that often the media don't take responsibility for that shift. 
because of because of, of of the directives they have and because of what's at stake in terms of the way that that journalism and information is disseminated it's no longer printed on paper it, it, it goes across the, the 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 ethernet and i just think that accountability is gone in that journalist because of the way the media works because something is clickbait one day and then and it has no meaning the following day there's no accountability there and so someone like barney rone who is just it's underhand compliments. It's saying how, how, how fantastic City were, what incredible force they are, but trying to gaslight it to saying, yeah, but it's a bit cold, isn't it? It's like, well, as a City fan, it's not cold. It's, it's, it's a meal that goes down really nicely. Thank you very much. And I think there's a lack of accountability. And, and, and in the media this week, you see a member of the, uh, you know, a sort of a strange member of the royal family determined to take, to take the media to account in terms of phone hacking. And whilst that's, those things, those things uh, are not the same thing, they are inextricably linked, I want to see accountability. And I want people pull, kind of pull to task for certain things which are printed because they do have a responsibility because a lot of journalists are mouthpieces that people listen to. And that's the reason why there needs to be objectivity and fair balance. And there simply isn't. And whilst we have got, whilst, whilst you're saying we should just accept it, forget about it and move on, at the same time, we are then complicit in the hypocrisy. And that's what I struggle with. If I'm not always banging the drum about bullshit that people like Barney Rony are writing, I'm indirectly encouraging it. It's a difficult place to, to be in, but it can't be ignored. Yeah, I am... Um... No, the, 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 there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there, and I get that thing of if you're not, yo, know, all that re- all that's required for evil to triumph is good people to do nothing, and you have that motivation. Mm-hmm. You see something you're like you want to respond to it, um, but then there's also like the there's the serenity prayer angle of it of the things you can and can't affect. Now, to go back to accountability, and again, I, I don't want to turn this into talks about individual journalists. Ronay's piece today picks up on themes he's written about regularly. I, th- I think there's a... City fans kind of know where Barney Ronay's coming from. So I think he kind of is accountable to what he's written previously. People know what to expect. He, you, you know what Barney Ronay's doing there. In terms of the clickbait stuff, if it's someone who, like, maybe doesn't have his profile, puts out an inflammatory thing about, I don't know, empty seats at the Etihad Stadium, and then that's tomorrow's digital chip paper... There's an accountability issue there. You said about like the days of like reading broadsheet journalism. I totally see that. The reason I want to be a ju- I always wanted to be a journalist. Well, I realised I was a shit footballer first of all. Um, and I used to read. You know, my dad used to get the Guardian, and I would read. I would pour over the sports page of that when mm. I was like sort of six, seven, eight. Loved it. When I when I watched, and this is where I I really understand fan frustration with summer city coverage. When I used to watch a game, I enjoyed. I would want to then pour over the reports to that match, that fight, that test match afterwards. I appreciate City fans want to do that, and that isn't always there at the moment. Sometimes they're going to be hard to find. And so, so I totally get that because I, I remember how I got into doing this. But the other thing is, which you touch upon, is the industry is just so, so radically different. There is so much. So, I don't know. Like One of the things that often gets talked about is how United covered when they were a great team. I mean, so the last time United were really good was when I was just starting out as a journalist in 2008. And, like, the volume of stuff is just so much more. Oh, even going back to when United were dominant at the end of the 90s, um, 
I remember. I vividly remember hearing on six oh six someone saying United were turning the Premier League into the Scottish Premier League, and thinking that was quite funny and maybe quite true at the time. But the thing is, that would be on six oh six on the Saturday night, and then everyone would go on and get on with their week. It doesn't stop. It is. It is everywhere, and that does make it hard. But basically, if if you want to find this is where when these threads start on Twitter about like, oh, what about that article, what about that article, what about this one? Yeah, there are examples of shit journalism about City, unquestionably. But there is just so much, and I think that's where I say it's got to a point now where things feel very entrenched. And if we're at a point where we discussed earlier in the conversation, guys who I think are doing very good journalism about City are seen as sort of not doing it well enough, then I think I don't know, and that makes me sad. I, I wish there was a way of resolving this, but I think everyone's decided where they stand now. And, yeah, and that is where I would say, just enjoy the best football that you're ever going to see. Mm. And I know, I, For God's sake, I, don't worry about what journalists say. Of co- no, of, co- of course, yeah. of course, but part... Football has been a big part of my life. Or I've played, I've managed, I've coached, and now I'm referee, and, I, and I've, I've watched, and I've watched terrible third division football, and now I'm watching elite Premier League, Champions League football. But there are other peripheral elements, like the media, that have enhanced that experience for me. And, and, and I am absolutely not old school. I don't hark back to a, a, I don't say... It was better in my day. I, I reject that stance completely. But what I do fear is, and that comparison you talked about, like about 606, so much of public broadcasting and national broadcasting has become basically fan TV, where presenters and, and commentators no longer attempt to disguise their partisan uh, preference for the particular team. And, and you will never get objectivity with that, apart from when that team are really shit. So when you've got Jason Cundy, is it, who, who's on, you know, who's, who's on uh, TalkSport, he'll only batter his, his, his team if they're really bad. The rest of the time, he'll, he'll advocate for them. So I think I just see a trend, which I think is a really tragic trend of where it's going. I don't want a city, I don't want a city favoring journalist to cheerlead. I don't want that. I want them to objectively criticise us when we are making mistakes. At the same time, I want other non-partisan journalists to be able to acknowledge the quality of football, the, the, the precision of the management and the whole infrastructure without always putting a caveat or an asterisk next to it. And maybe my expectations are too high, but I mm. think that is a very, that's a very the, low bar. I'll take the cheerleader all day long. I, I'm reminded of the, uh, of the analogy that I made about bad refereeing decisions where you know, I, I sort of feel like I'll take I'll take any VAR um, decision that goes our way. I've seen enough bad ones go the other way, and the same applies to football writing. I think I come I just come back to the same idea, which is that there's loads of United fans in the media covering United. There's loads of Liverpool fans in the media covering Liverpool. There's loads of Spurs fans in the media covering Spurs. The list goes on and on. But when it comes to City, there's very few City fans covering City, particularly at the big organisations and platforms. And that's why there is a skewed version of coverage uh, when you compare City with those other clubs. Anyway, enough about the media. I didn't expect it to take that long. Um, Now we're going to hear from Alan, the Fulham fan. I'm delighted to be joined by Alan from the Hammy End podcast to talk all things Fulham. Uh, good evening, Alan. How are you? 
I'm very well, thank you, Howard. How are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Getting towards another weekend, so. Oh yes. I can't believe it's going to be May soon as well. It's like. It's good. This year's just gone so quick. Yeah. Isn't it? It's been a weird. I mean, it has been a weird few years, hasn't it? But yeah, it's going very quickly. Uh, it's business end of the season, so yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Uh, look. We're here to talk about Fulham and not me and the <laughs> and time speeding by. Uh, I think the obvious place to start with, uh, first of all, thanks for coming on and uh, committing your time to talk about Fulham. I really appreciate it uh, when opposition fans do that. But I guess the obvious g- generic question is, it's fair to say you've had a pretty good season. Yeah, I don't think anyone would have ex- expected us to be as high up as we are. Um, that's us included. I think if you'd have told us at the beginning of the season you'll finish 17th, we'd have bit your hands off. But to be in the top 10 with only seven games to go, we're delighted. Um, No complaints. Yeah, it's just every game we go into, we seem to be in the game rather than it just being one-sided. I think there's only really been two games this season where we've not really been a part of it. Mm. So from that aspect considering our last two attempts in the Premier League, it's just been <laughs> night and day. Yeah. Did you actually come into the season? Because uh, obviously we spoke earlier in the season and we'll get to that game in a second. <laughs> Turned out to be rather interesting. Uh, <laughs> uh, did you come into this season just looking? Yeah, you said you're lucky to stay up. Uh, or Did you secretly have to, you know aspirations higher than that? It's a difficult one because... The way we performed last season with Silva, it, it felt different compared yeah. to our last two attempts. We felt like we had a manager that liked to play attacking football. We weren't just beating teams last season. We were destroying teams at times, a bit like you do in the Premier League. Mm. Um, and yeah, there was sort of quiet optimism about, but ultimately, as I just said, the last two attempts, we've gone down without a fight pretty much. So... As a Fulham fan, all I wanted to see was a bit of passion, a bit of fight, and just just to not roll over again. Mm. But you know, we looked at the teams at the beginning of the season and thought, right, you know, if we can finish above this team, there's a good chance we're going to stay up. But as it stands, we're currently six points ahead of Chelsea, and yeah, it's hey, it's, it's, it's just been a great season. <laughs> that's not much of a boast, at the moment. <laughs> it is for us. <laughs> it is. I know. Yeah, <laughs> tongue in cheek. That uh, my muscle memory says. That Last season, I don't know if I've imagining this, your goal scored was only second to Kevin Keegan's City in the in the championship. I don't know. Did you sc- uh, you we, must have scored a lot of goals last season. We scored 107 goals. Yeah. I think 107. Yeah, because we, or was it 106? It may have been 106 because it was 99 going into the last game, I think. And we <laughs> beat Luton 7 0. Wow. Um, yeah, so I think it was 106 goals. Um, and just to put it into perspective, Luton actually got into the playoffs last season. Mm. So, you know, it wasn't the best way to start a, a playoff campaign for them, but it just went, just sort of shows how good we were last season. And yeah. most of our team this season, to be honest, is still the same team that took us up last year. So, you know, I think Pep actually commented after the uh, the reverse picture at the Etihad and said to Tim Ream, you know, if he was 10 years younger, you'd be playing for me. So <laughs> it just goes to show how far we've come as a team and especially the likes of Tim Ream, as I'm sure we'll get into yeah. later on. Uh, so Marco Silva, he must, I've written the notes, he must take a lot 
stroke all <laughs> of the credit for the team's revival. Just how impressed have you been with him since he, he's come to the club? He's been fantastic. Uh, as I said, even from the beginning of last season, it felt different when we went up. Um, and as I said, the fact we've not really looked at a place at all this season, bar maybe a couple of games, it is credit to, to Marco Silva. The recruitment's been better. We've signed Premier League players. We've signed quality over quantity, which we've not done in recent times. So everything's just come together nicely. Um, but Marco Silva, you can tell he's passionate. He loves the club. He loves what he's doing. And there's currently links about him going to Tottenham, but I don't fear him leaving. I think if he is going to leave anytime soon, then it's going to take a lucrative offer from someone or a massive club. And I don't think Tottenham's the sort of place you want to go to at the minute. If <laughs> you're, you're managing a club that's on the rise. So, yeah, yeah he, he's been fantastic. Uh, no complaints. No complaints from us. And he's starting to get the plaudits he deserves. Mm. Yeah, he'd have to be insane to go to Spurs right now, to be honest. Yeah, uh, you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> I think if they called me, I'd even turn him down, to be honest. Uh, and maybe that sure. call will come eventually when they're <laughs> low on, uh, yeah, on options. So I'm just praying uh, Vincent Company doesn't take it as well. He'd be insane to do it because he's been linked with them as well. So, But again, yeah. he's with the club on the up. Why would you do it? So... Uh, yeah, I did put also in the notes that whether performances have tailed off at all recently, and I guess what I was getting at uh, was that crazy 10 minutes at Old Trafford in the FA Cup. How much, obviously, with Mitrovic since being banned uh, for, I don't know, what was it, eight games in total? How much did that yeah. small period of time? Because I was watching it with my dad, who's a United fan, uh, bizarrely, thinking... Fulham are all over United here. It's theirs for the taking. And then you're out the cup and you've lost your star striker for eight games. Has it had a huge ripple effect for the rest of your season? It it hasn't, looking back now, but the, ne- the next two games after that quarterfinal game against United did. Um, we struggled a bit. But again, credit to Marco Silva. He made a few changes. He changed our tactics so ever so slightly. Uh, instead of playing Vinicius as a Mitrovic replacement, we went with pace through the middle. Um, and as soon as he'd done that, we went to Goodison Park and we managed to win 3-1. Mm. You know, it was only the second time in our history we've actually won there. Uh, but look, that game at Old Trafford, it still annoys me talking <laughs> to you now. And it's been you know over a month since it happened. See, the thing is, the biggest problem we have as Fulham fans is Chris Kavanagh lost control completely we should have had a penalty after three minutes in that game uh, we could have had a penalty 20 minutes later uh, and we, he has history with us we played West Ham earlier on in the season where we lost 3-1 and two of those goals were deliberate handballs which mm. for some reason weren't ruled out and the first goal was a penalty which which was harsh uh, and there was also a game last season he refed so there has been history with Kavanagh and Fulham uh, the, the William red card was a red card. Now, as soon yeah. as we got under 10 men, the game was over anyway. Whether Mitrovic stayed on or not, the game was over, in my opinion. But, you know, since Mitrovic has been banned, as I said, it took us a bit of time to hang over, not only from his red card, but also the fact that we should have been out of sight in that game. Yeah, We should, we should have been playing Brighton at the weekend. Um, and who knows, we may have been playing you again 
for another drubbing in a few weeks' time. Um, but yeah, I can say now we we have recovered. So yeah, we've just got to go into every game now and just hit, see it as a freebie because we're not going to get Europe. We're not going to go down. So we can just go and enjoy it, which is rare. We've not felt yeah. like this in years in the Premier League. So Sometimes it's nice just to not have the stress of something <laughs> at the yeah, end of the it's, season. It's mainly relegation. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, especially where you've just been promoted, this is absolutely success. And yeah, another three points you probably, I don't know, you could have still had an outside chance at those European places because I think it goes down. Do not go down to seventh or eighth? Uh, I think it's know. eighth, the Europa Conference League, isn't it? You're still... Yeah, don't get me wrong. We're still in it. We can yeah. still get a Europa Conference League spot. Um, and if we get it, fantastic. But we have, I'd say, three fixtures where I don't expect anything from. Whereas the other four, they're all winnable. So we'll see. You know, we're not aiming for it. But if it's there, fantastic. Yeah. And uh, just uh, before we look at Sunday's match... Uh kind of city old boy. How is uh, Tosin Adorabayo been doing these days? He's uh, had a lot of City fans absolutely fuming at the fee you bought him for when, <laughs> uh, when he joined Fulham. I was delighted. He was a, a football manager coop. Yeah, I think Two million just, pounds, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. He, he's just been outstanding for us since he's joined. Very professional. This season, he's been in and out of the squad, but that's not due to bad performances. Mm. That's due to Marco Silva rotating. We have Tosin and we have Issa Diop, who are fairly similar. But I think Diop just gives you that bit more strength when you're playing against a, a number nine that's going to be a bit more physical. I think if you've got, if you're, if you're playing against someone with fast attackers, I think you'll see Tosin in there. Mm. Um, so on Sunday, I'd expect Diop to start. I don't think Tosin will for that yeah. reason. Um, I think Haaland, you know, he's 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 a not a bully boy. That's the wrong word to use. He's an elite striker, but he's strong. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's enough words uh, in, in in a dictionary to describe just how good Haaland, Haaland is at putting a ball in the net. So, yeah, Tossin's been fantastic. Uh, the, the fans love him, and yeah, hopefully he's here for a long time. Mm. But I just got this sneaky feeling that someone at Newcastle or just someone. Is going to come in with a big bid, and we can't say no because for two million, you know, we could easily sell him for twenty million, in my opinion. So, you think he's good enough for Newcastle? You know, who are themselves obviously with funds behind him are looking. Well, well he's Champions he, League football next season, perhaps. Well, this is it. Now, I know Newcastle have been they've inquired about him a few times. I think twice last season, um, and I think they even did at the beginning of this season. Mm. Who knows? You know, New, I know Newcastle have taken it to the next level, but their squad isn't massive. Um, but Tossin's what? I think he's 24. Mm. He's, he's still fairly young and, you know, he's not really had a bad game all season when he has played. So, yeah, and it, you know, he's he's been fantastic and I'm I'm hoping he's there for years to come because Tim Ream isn't going to last forever. So, at the start of this, at the start of the season, we actually thought Issa Diop was going to come in and play alongside Tossin. But as it's turned out, Tim Ream's been undroppable and, in my opinion, been one of the best centre backs in the league. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's always next season, and hopefully he's around for a long time yet. Tossin, we're 35 now, Tim Ream. Wow. 
Yeah, time does fly, does it not? Yeah. He's like a fine wine. He just gets better <laughs> with age. Yeah. <laughs> good for you, Al. Modern game. Might have a good few years left in him yet, so who knows. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about dribblings before. Well, it's, uh, there is that uh, other fixture earlier in the season. Certainly wasn't that. Uh, what what a game. Uh, won by what I'm sure you would say was a very soft penalty at the end, but obviously playing with 10 men, 2-1, uh, yeah. Uh, not probably not how I expected the game to go. Going into Sunday's match, they say you've had a good season. Uh, you're in the top half of the table. Do you have confidence in getting a result against City? Yeah, no. Sunday's a a game I'm looking forward to. It's going to be a great game to watch. Hopefully for us. Um, I'm still as pessimistic as I was last time because. I think Man City are just on this run of form that mm. can beat anyone in the world and they proved that against Arsenal. Um, I'd be a bit more happy if we had Mitrovic and Willian. I think Willian is a doubt because he went off injured in the uh, pre-warm-up for the, yeah. against Villa. Was that so we, hamstring or groin or one of those things? Yeah, yeah the ham, I think he had a hamstring tweak. Right. So hopefully it's nothing too serious because... He's been amazing for us this season. Uh, he's another one that's aging like a fine wine. He's managed to get his form back that he had at Chelsea. Um, but yeah, I'm excited. I'm taking my my two children. My son's obsessed with Haaland. So <laughs> yeah, he um, hopefully hopefully Haaland will play on Sunday. And hopefully he has the worst game of his career and we can keep the scoreline below five. Yeah. Um, but no, you know. I, ca- I can't wait for it. And we're, we're all obsessed with Haaland, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I think everyone is. I don't think you can be a football fan if you're not, because what he's doing at the moment is just it's freakish stuff. It's mm. it's just you couldn't write it. He's just got personality as well. The guy, he's, you know, he's up for a fight as well. It's just other aspects that I didn't never really thought about until I've seen it in the last couple of months. Yeah, he's a. Uh, <laughs> in every aspect he's just amazing so uh, call him a robot don't they yeah yeah made in the <laughs> lab so <laughs> uh, Harry Wilson was uh, I think had an upset stomach which I can f- fully uh, understand uh, <laughs> with my diet in the last two weeks so so he, that's why he went off one I thought he was injured at the time he was hobbling off in the last game so he'll probably be okay uh, and he's been yes. good for you as well, as he? Oh, he's certainly recently been in the goals as well. Uh, he's been injured for most of it as well, so mm. it's nice to see him actually having a, a run of games. And as you said, he's hit some form, so he's going to be a threat mm. for all of five minutes we have the ball. And is it stating the obvious that Palhinha, if I've said that right, is one of the yeah. most important uh, cogs in your team? Yeah, I, I think I mentioned him in the... Uh, the last time we spoke, mm. uh, to be fair, I think I've mentioned Paulinho in all my podcasts and in every other podcast I've done because so it's nothing's, just that good. N- nothing's changed <laughs> since the last time. No, he, he's he's just an elite footballer, in my opinion, yeah. and I'm still adamant he won't be playing for Fulham next season. Mm. Uh, I see him being linked with Tottenham, and I think today I saw that he's been linked with Bayern Munich. Wow! Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me if he did go and join someone like Bayern Munich. In my opinion, he's he's that good. I think the only player in the Premier League that's probably better than him at this moment in time is Rodri. Uh, but he's... Paulini is just a, a fantastic footballer and a joy to watch. Yeah. So he's, obviously, for those that don't know, he's a defensive midfielder in Rodri's mould then? 
Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he links, obviously, your defence and your midfield together as well. So He does. And I, I still think he's made the most tackles in the Premier League, Paulinia. And mm. he's probably the main reason why we are so high in the league. You know, Mitrovic not playing is a huge loss. You know, if there's one player in that team we can't afford to lose, it's Paulinia. You can lose Leno, you can lose Mitrovic, you can lose William Ream, but you lose Paulinia and that team goes from a mid-table team to a relegation candidate. He's that important to us. Uh, we only paid £17 million for him. He's on a six-year contract. So if he does go in the summer, then we're definitely going to make a nice return on him. But he's, if we sell him, we need to make sure that the recruitment is right. And over the last couple of years, it has been so... I'm hoping you get to see the best of him on, on Sunday because if he has a very good game, there's a good chance we can be competitive and that's all we ask for on Sunday. Just one final player. Uh, we were linked with him towards the end of the transfer window and I think we'll be linked again. It surprised some people, but I could see the pluses for it. Anthony Robinson. Yes. Are you surprised that he would be linked to a City or do you think he's he is good enough to to move uh, you know, to obviously a team that's uh, one of the best in Europe. Is he good enough for Man City? Probably not. Uh, he is still young. He's very quick. This season's probably been his best season at Fulham. Mm. Uh, the only one thing which all Fulham fans agree on is he struggles to cross a ball. Yeah, so that's what I he, picked up. Yeah, he's not got... His stats are not good, are they, for assists or goals or anything, to be honest, yeah. No. Um, whereas the way Man City play, you know, you do like to get the ball out wide and get it into the edge of the 89 box, cut the ball back. Um, a typical Man City goal, if you like, that's how I see Man City anyway. Mm. They're just so good at, you know, just, just playing through channels. Robinson, I know he's, he's not... Uh, a Man City player yet. That's not to say in 12, 18 months' time he may be. Because, um, you know, you signed Nathan Ake, is it from Bournemouth? So yeah. you, you have taken a punt on a few a few players from smaller clubs, if you like. Um, but no, I think you'd be slightly disappointed if you signed Robinson. And he didn't cost us much, to be honest. So it'd be interesting if you did sign him, how much that would be for. But he's been, he has been great for us but I don't think he's ready yet to make that step to elite level like Man City. Yeah. And one of the final questions, I have to go back to Silva. I always think of Fulham <laughs> of playing a certain way. Always. Yeah. Attractive. See, nice to watch. If you're neutral, you'll probably, you know, and the, on the telly, you'll, you'd pull it on. Uh, has <laughs> Silva continued that? I mean, has he continued just playing? Obviously, I kind of answered it earlier by mentioning how many goals he scored last season. But is it important for Fulham fans that someone comes in and plays the same way that he used to in the past? Yeah, I think, you know, I, apart from Silva, I'd say Slavisa, Jakanovic and Tigana, those three managers sort of play a similar way. They like to play fluid football, attacking football. Um, and we haven't changed too much, but we've changed enough to make us competitive. Um, don't get me wrong, when we're playing at the cottage, we're very attacking on the front foot. We like to press. The only game this season where 
I have been really disappointed in us was Arsenal at home a few weeks back. There was no press. Mm. We just looked tired. And again, that was, I think, the first game back after the Mitrovic red card. So it could have been that. It could have been a hangover from that. But we just were never in it. But since then, we have been a bit more high press, a bit more get in your face. Yeah. Um, I just hope on Sunday we do stick to that. I Yes, we could lose five or six, but if we set up like we did against Arsenal and we just stand off, you know, it, it's just pointless. You want to see a competitive game. Yeah. I want to see a competitive game. So our pitch is a lot smaller than yours. Um, the ground's a lot smaller. It's a lot more compact. The atmosphere this season's actually been really good for us. So if we can start well, you know, make a few early challenges, then, you know, I, I hope Silver does instruct the team to go out and press high. Yeah. Um, because if we don't, there's just no point turning up on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> just being honest. There's you looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't see us winning five or six nil. I can promise you that. So, uh, and I, I don't know not. what side, you know, how you'll rotate because we do have a game to in me week as well. So two every week we will see. Look, I always finish with a score prediction. So some go with the head, some go with their heart. Uh, what are you going to go for? I'm going to go for a, a two nil defeat. Um, I think I think you'll win. Uh, I think it'll be two nil and a goal either half. I'll take that. As long as we can stay in it for as long as possible, yeah, then that's enough for us. Okay. And who knows, we may get a, a goal from Pereira or someone. But no, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go 3-1 City because, yeah, I think Fulham definitely have a goal in them the way you play. But hopefully City have got their bit between the teeth now uh, after recent results and the focus will be there. Well, Alan... Thank you very much yes. again for coming on. And as always, after this weekend, all the best <laughs> for the rest of the season and uh, and beyond. Uh, and thanks again for coming on and taking the time out. Speak to us. No problem. It's always a pleasure speaking to you, Howard, and good luck for the rest of the season. And I really do hope you win a Champions League because it's been long overdue. So ah. you have my support Thank you. when you do play Real and then beat AC Milan in the final. After the detritus of uh, Twitter, even last night after we won, uh, it's nice to hear stuff like that occasionally. Uh, not that I expect my team to be loved by the masses, to be honest, but yeah, it's appreciated. <laughs> so thank you once more for going on all the best. And we go back now to the panel to, to preview Sunday's game. Right, that was Alan, Fulham fan. Wow, <laughs> this has been a long show and we still haven't talked about Fulham this weekend. So we're going we're gonna to have to make this one efficient. Dom, I follow them on the beach. Yeah, they might be. Um, I work with a guy who is a Fulham fan who has said all season they've, been, they've done really well, but Burnt Leno has been their best player and they've massively sort of overachieved um, in terms of XG and things like that. And they're partly on the beach and there's partly a little bit of reversion to the mean going on, I think. And also Mitrovic is banned because he's mad as a box of frogs. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, Chris, how do you deal with, with the selection this weekend? I mean, at the end of the day, I guess what I really want to know is how strong do you expect us to go? Well, if, if, I, well, if it was up to me, I would go strong in every game that we've got left. 
we have il- we have potentially eleven fixtures left to play: Premier League, FA Cup, and then Champions League. And my rotation uh, policy would be: go strong, go your strongest in each game, and then rotate on sixty minutes when you bring on uh, substitutes and give those key players thirty minutes rest at, at that point. I I think that. Someone said to me after the get walking out City fan said to me after the game on Wednesday this title race is over and I said mm, it's not over it's more to the difference is it's now it's now no longer about what uh, Arsenal do it's about what City do um, and so for me it's about show that professionalism show that steel kill a game off within sixty minutes and then rotate I, I I wouldn't want to see any more than two or three changes for every game moving forward even if it's against Fulham even if, even if it, it's against Leeds. We need to display that um, attitude and that clinical approach. So I, I would continue to pick our strongest team with the, where we know where those potential changes are and it's kind of either Bernie or Gundo. Maybe Phil gets a little bit more work now, but there are, there are now at least, I'd say, seven, maybe eight first names on, on the team sheet for the next 11 games for me. Dom, we've got West Ham in midweek after Fulham. Um, do, do you envisage, bearing in mind that Real Madrid is the week after, can you see us and can you see a world where we go very strong for both Fulham and West Ham with a bit of rotation the following weekend before, uh, before the Madrid game when we play Leeds? Because it's Leeds at home after West Ham. Yeah, I think these three games, you, prob- you probably look at more rotation in the home games. Um, and from the start, not like mad ones after 15 minutes against Leicester, ideally. Um, I think these are games where instead of like any sort of big wholesale sort of five or six changes, there are maybe two or three each time. Maybe, you know, there'll be one where De Bruyne gets a rest and Foden plays the 10, I imagine. You know, Alvarez and Mares will get, will get good minutes in. Um, I think that Gundian and... Bernardo can't play every single game, or maybe they will. Um, yeah, it, it'll be little bits and bobs like that, rather than the one. I don't think and can always be proved wrong by Guardiola team sheets. I would not expect any of those three games to be a sort of wow, where have all these lot come from? I think it'll be twos and threes each time, and then full steam ahead for Madrid. Excellent. Dom, will we win? Will we beat Fulham? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, do we beat Fulham? Yes. Excellent. Well, you know what? On that very positive note, I think I'm going to uh, I'm going to call this a wrap. Dom, thank you very much. No worries, mate. Good career ender for me. <laughs> <laughs> mate, come on. You've listened to enough 9320 podcasts that I've hosted to know that if you come on the pod and I'm hosting and you're a member of the media, I might, I might take the opportunity to fire some shots you know oh god the agenda capital t capital a exactly exactly chris thank you very much pleasure as always dom i was really there was a lot of things you said that made they gave me pause for thought so i appreciate that and just to say you should have seen the pylon on me on our whatsapp group on, <laughs> on, on on thursday after i suggested it wasn't a penalty on de bruyne in the first half so don't worry about it mate it rolls <laughs> it's water off a duck's back just just roll with it it's fine no worries, I, I, can't, I can't believe you thought that wasn't a penalty anyway <laughs> okay Ooh. how long have you got <laughs> Ooh, should, we go? should we go again should we go again no we'll I, we'll, we'll... I, 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 so let me say one thing go okay on. and okay 
people say you, you make decisions as a ref all over the pitch, they should be the same. It's just simply not like that. When you're in that 18-yard box, the what's at stake is greater. Therefore, as a referee, you have to be 100% sure it's a penalty. 99% is not enough, 100%. I didn't think it was 100% penalty. Neither the referee, neither the VAR. That's why it wasn't given. Therefore, that's why I would say it was not a penalty. Dom, did you think it was 100% a penalty? I did, but I do see the point. The, the idea of, oh, that's a foul anywhere else on the pitch. I totally agree with Chris that people who advocate for that, if they got if they got their wish, they would be doing their brains in about there yeah. being five penalties every weekend. It's the same. It's the same. All we want is clarity and consistency. The people around handball rules and VAR are the very same people that hate the mess we're in. Yeah, I, so I agree there. All very fair. Lovely. Right, gentlemen, thank you both very, very much. To everybody who listened, thank you very much. This was the Friday show on the Night 320 podcast. If you like this, go to the website, sign up to the Night 320 player. We do loads of podcasts every week. Previews, reviews, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, take care of yourselves. And as always, up the blues. <laughs> <laughs>